Well, good morning. Oh, sure, the guy's here only a few seconds and he's already rearranging the furniture. Well, this is my first time here. Uh, previously, I was occupied on Sunday morning, so couldn't make it. But uh, before I begin, I thought maybe I'd take just one minute to introduce myself. As uh, Patrick, uh, Pastor Patrick said, I'm Larry Freiling. Uh, last month, actually October 10, I celebrated my 40th anniversary as an ordained pastor in the Christian Reformed Church. That's amazing. I never thought I would make it 40 years, and I also, I'm only 29 years old, so <laughs> it was kind of miraculous. Um, I have served churches in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, Poway, California, northern San Diego, and for 26 years I was just down the road at the Christ Community Church in Hayward. And like Pastor Ken Boonstra, who retired in June of 2021, I did also. Uh, my wife and I have been married since we were 21 years old, which means it's been a long time. And in that time, we've been parents, we've been foster parents for Alameda County, we have been adoptive parents. So from our oldest child to our youngest, it's uh, 25 years. Our youngest just turned 20 yesterday, and we are still looking forward to the empty nest, um, whenever that is. Uh, we have eight grandchildren. There are three more in the process of being adopted by our older children. This Saturday in uh, Stockton, Lord willing, one of them will be made official. Saturday is adoption day. And there's one muffin in the oven uh, due to be delivered in March. So that'll make us an even dozen. Other than that, I'm the stated clerk for Class of Central California, which all that means is I just keep the churches organized and working together. Now, enough about me. We'll pass the mic and you each have a minute to share <laughs> so we all get to know each other. Well, today, um, I kind of uh, struggled with what to talk about. I didn't want to do anything controversial. Um, and I did so with something that was told me a long time ago. All of us have had those incidences where somebody has said something that it really influenced us. One of the things that influenced me as, as a pastor and as a preacher is that when I was in junior high, we went to church. Ironically, I was raised in the Emanuel Christian Reformed Church of Wyoming, Michigan. And I began going to church nine months before I was born. And um, we, so we'd go to church, and one, when I was in junior high, we came home from church and we were eating lunch together, and my father said, do you know what I don't like about church? And being junior high, it was sort of like, yeah, I don't like church either. Um, but I'm, I'm curious. He said, what I don't like is that when you walk in on Sunday morning and you pick up the program or the bulletin and you read the passage for today's sermon, you get the Bible out of the pew, you read it, and you know exactly what the pastor is going to say before he says it. He said, I want something new. Well, that's been marked my ministry because I've always gone into this going, how can I add value to your life, maybe showing you something you haven't seen before? 
So today what I'm going to do is take that challenge on in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, people that don't even go to church are familiar at least with the phrase Good Samaritan. Somebody is going down the freeway and they see a car flip over and it's catching on fire and the news says, and a Good Samaritan pulled the driver out of the burning car. To be a good Samaritan is to be a good thing. We have good Samaritan hospitals. We even have a road club like AAA called Good Sam. Kind of picking up on that whole theme. Now if I were to ask you this morning to take a piece of paper or just a mental note and write down what does the parable of the Good Samaritan teach us? I'm pretty sure what you would write down. Because I've heard enough sermons, I've listened to enough, I went this week and did an internet search on the Good Samaritan, I've listened to people in the church, and basically the summary of today's message would be, when there is someone in need, we should help them. Because that's what the Good Samaritan did. That is the commonly held belief, and as we start today, I'm going to tell you that it's wrong. That is not what Jesus is teaching us. Now, don't go out and be mean to people, you know, but we can find being good to people and helping them in another place. So with that, I would like you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. If you're using the Bibles in the seats and you can't quite find where Luke is, that's page 1612, 1612, And I'm going to begin reading in Luke chapter 10 at verse 25. And um, what I'm going to do is kind of start, stop, stop, explain, so keep your Bibles open because to prove my point, you really need your Bible open and not just trust me. All right, Luke chapter 10 beginning at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let's kind of get the scene here. You know, there were a number of times that Jesus was approached by religious leaders, and they tried to trick and manipulate him. Like the time they came to him and said, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes to the Romans? If Jesus said yes, the people would be upset. If Jesus said no, they could take him to the Romans and say, see, he's, he's promoting insurrection. They tried to manipulate him. This expert of the law, I think, comes out to Jesus out of curiosity and wants to know what he's made of and what he teaches. You see, Jesus was sort of this unusual character. He didn't go through the regular theological training. He wasn't trained under a rabbi, but he had this unique wisdom and he had this unique perspective, and I think this expert kind of wanted to see what he was made of. Last Sunday, my wife and I, because we have just been curious, had heard about a certain charismatic Pentecostal church, and we attended it just to see what it was like. What about the songs and the music and the message and the theme and being with that? It was sort of a testing it out. So he's coming to Jesus to say, okay, what are you made of? And basically his question is, what do I need to do to be saved? Jesus, what do you think? 
Jesus, as he often did, responds to a question with a question. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Boy, just like Pastor Patrick did this morning. Here's the summary. Love God, love your neighbor. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, what he doesn't understand is just moments before this passage began, um, if you go up a couple of verses, Jesus is talking about his relationship with God the Father. And in effect says, if you love the Lord your God, you're going to love me because I also have deity. So he tells this man, you love God, you love your neighbor, you got the answer. Verse 29, but the expert on the law wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? Now, what's interesting here is I, I really like this expert on the law because he's not sort of the philosophical guy. He's sort of like me. It's like, what does that look like? You know, don't give me some little phrase. I want to know where does the rubber meet the road? And so, I've, you know, don't tell me to love my neighbor. I need to know who my neighbor is. But then it goes on to say he wants to justify himself. In other words, I already have a view of who my neighbor is. And Jesus, I want to know if you agree with that. Now, reading into the expert and, and listening to what was happening in the rest of Scripture, there were people in Jesus' day who looked at the world and they lived under the occupation of the Roman army. And when you ask the question is, who is my neighbor? Would a Roman soldier, a Roman occupier be in that circle? And the answer is no. Matter of fact, you would look and you would say, anyone who was not Jewish doesn't fit in that circle. So instead of a broad circle, you begin to narrow the circle. And now this guy is a theological expert. And we know in that time there were different theological views, just like there are in society today. There were Pharisees and there were Sadducees and there were other groups. There were some that were more conservative, some that were more liberal. And he put himself in a certain category. And what he began to do is shrink the circle down to the people that are my neighbors are the people just like me. They are the people who agree with me. And if you disagree with me, you're outside of the circle. So he comes to Jesus with this pretty narrow circle and says, now, these are the people who are my neighbors, and this is the group I'm supposed to love. Right, Jesus? Now again, Jesus doesn't just go and give the answer, so Jesus begins by telling the story. In verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, just a little quick history. They, he was going down. Jerusalem was 3,400 feet higher than Jericho. So thankfully, the man was going downhill instead of working his way uphill. 
But also that road was marked by a lot of twists and turns and caves. And to say that somebody was robbed on that road was just a common occurrence. You come around a corner behind a rock and there's somebody ready to take your money. Now in Jesus' story, somebody does. What's interesting is Jesus tells the story is they, they stripped him of his clothes. I think Jesus intentionally put that in because when this individual was stripped of his clothes, you could not tell his importance or significance. For example, if, you'd, if somebody had come around the corner and see someone lying there and he was in a priest robe, you would go, oh, that's somebody important. Or he was in a military uniform, oh, that's somebody important. Or if he was dressed badly, doesn't matter. What Jesus is doing is, it is a human being. You don't know his rank. You don't know whether he's considered important or not. You may even have some of the ideas of his ethnicity that's removed. And when it says they beat him and left him half dead, the literal meaning is he was in critical condition. He was unconscious. He couldn't even talk to say his name, let alone what he did. You have a just breathing body there. Then he goes on. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now the priest and the Levite both worked in the temple. Slightly different roles. The priest did the sacrifices, interceded for God with the people. The Levite might be on the praise team. He might be the person that kept the altar going, but they both work in the temple, and it would be roughly equivalent to saying the pastor of a church and an elder walked by on the other side of the road. As Jesus is telling the story, you would expect that those individuals, because of their religious beliefs, would care for this individual. But for whatever reason, one of which could be, I don't know, is he alive or dead? And if I touch him, I can't serve in the temple for a period of time. Or maybe they just didn't care. But they passed by on the other side of the road. Then Jesus continued, but a Samaritan. Now let's stop there. When you and I say the word Samaritan, it has good meanings. He was a good Samaritan, Samaritan hospital, good Sam. In Jesus' day, Samaritan, if you called somebody a Samaritan, it would be like me taking one of those racially charged words that we don't say and set it of an individual. You see, brief history of Samaritans. The nation of Israel was one nation under King David and King Solomon. And after, they, after Solomon died, the kingdom split in two, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom. Because of their ongoing sin, and God kept warning, eventually a foreign army came in and took away many of the people from the northern kingdom. We kind of call them the lost ten tribes of Israel. But they left a group of Jewish people there. Then that army brought in other people from other places and put them together, and they did that because these two groups wouldn't necessarily get along, and you don't have to worry about insurrection. But over a period of time, the Jewish boy over here meets a foreign girl over here, they get married, and that group was called the Samaritans. 
If you were Jewish, these were not considered to be Jewish people. They were different ethnically. I'm a pure Jew, they're not. Theologically, the Samaritans had different beliefs. If you remember Jesus meeting the woman at the well, she said, well, we worship on this mountain, you worship on that mountain, which one is right? So in Jesus' day, there is a lot of hatred between these two groups. You are theologically wrong and you are ethnically wrong. And when you wanted to go from southern Israel to northern Israel in Jesus' day, you would go around them. And Jesus always surprised them by going through the middle. So when you called somebody a Samaritan, it was an insult. So you know how it is when somebody is talking and they're telling you a story and your brain runs ahead of them? When Jesus is telling the story, the priest passed by, the Levite passed by, but a Samaritan, in the mind of the expert of the law, but a Samaritan. He's going to go over to that man there, kick him to see if he's dead, and if he's not dead, he'll kill him. Because that's the way Samaritans are. And then Jesus kind of messes that all up. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put a man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two coins and gave it to the innkeeper. By the way, two coins, that was, that was worth two days of wages. Uh, people that lived day by day, they, workers would be paid at the end of every day so they would have food for that day. You don't get paid at the end of the week or twice a month. You got paid every day. That was considered a lot of money. And he gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, Jesus is telling the story. And, and as, as he's telling the story, I want you to take a, a look at the picture on the screen. And when Jesus tells a parable, he often tells a parable so that the listener identifies themselves in the story. Let me give you an example. Jesus in Luke 15 tells a story about a woman who lost some coins and she rips her whole house apart until she finds the coins and when she finds them, she celebrates. Now the question is, who am I in that story? Well, I'm not the woman, I'm the coins. And God is working every which way in order to bring me to faith in Jesus Christ and when he does, there's this big party in heaven and a big celebration. I identify myself in the story as the coins. Now when the religious leader, this expert on the law is hearing the story, the question is, who does he identify with? Is he, for example, the priest in the story that's passing by on the other side? Of course not. You don't want to be identified, or the Levite. You don't want to be identified with people who don't care. Does he identify himself with a Samaritan? Are you kidding me? Do not, I do not identify myself as a Samaritan. When the expert of the law hears the story, he identifies himself as the victim, the guy lying on the ground. 
Now, look at verse 36. Here's the question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Now, this is the key to the story. You see, when you and I read this, we read it. Let me pretend I am the Samaritan. We read it from the Samaritan's eyes. The Samaritan looks down and says, who is my neighbor? My neighbor is someone in need. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Who was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He's reading this story. He's asking from the question of the victim. The victim is lying on the ground and looks up, and Jesus' question is, who is the victim's neighbor? And he's looking into the face of a Samaritan. Now, when you go to the next verse, the expert on the law can't say, my neighbor is a Samaritan. He says, the one who had compassion on him. He can't say the word. Then Jesus said, go do likewise. You see what Jesus just did in this story is he took this man's little circle, his little bubble of these are my friends, the people who are just like me, and Jesus stretched it out so far to I'm going to stretch it all the way to the person that you hate the most, and I'm going to expand your bubble all the way out there so that everyone in humanity is included. And that's why the title of the message is You Matter to God, So You Should Matter to Me. Jesus pushes it out and says, Who is my neighbor? Everyone, even someone I hate. Now, let's deal with two words. The first word is neighbor. One of the things that um, when my kids were younger, they'd watch Sesame Street. And there was this little phrase of which one of these is not like the other, right? Circle, circle, square. Which one is different? That one. One of the things that I think we as people just naturally tend to do is find things that are different from us in other people, and oftentimes that creates disunity. It happens in the church. Let's kind of start there. I told you I was raised in the Emmanuel Christian Reformed Church, and uh, I remember my first congregational meeting. I was probably eight years old. Uh, the church had started as like a small chapel, and they needed to build a, a worship center. Actually, it looked very much sort of like this one. And my father was the chairman of the property team, and they were building this building, and we needed a special meeting in order to discuss what kind of pews to put in. Option number one was to put in pews like you have, you know, sort of free-range seating. You can kind of slide back and forth. The other one was theater seating, individual seats. You had to put them down, sit down. 
And I remember the heated congregational meeting about which type of seats. And people were arguing and yelling, and you're wrong, and I'm right. And finally they voted, and they went with theater seating. I agreed. They were right. And I don't like you because you don't have it. You have your opinion, I have God's. And whenever people express an opinion different from what we have, the immediate reaction within us is to shrink the circle. In the church, we are inevitably going to argue and debate about different things. Over my time as a pastor, I've had elders and deacons resign because they disagreed about building a parking lot or doing whatever it was, and a whole bunch of it didn't matter But the idea is somehow we get in our minds because you disagree with me that somehow you're not worthy of my love anymore. You're one of them. Sometimes in the church, for the community, we kind of send that kind of message too. I I was going to do something this morning, but I already embarrassed a group of people and I don't want to embarrass you, so I'll just tell you how I embarrassed them. Um, One time I asked about 10 people of the church to volunteer and come and basically stand right in the center. And I asked them to stand in a circle and face each other. Then I called for another volunteer, and it happened to be a young guy, and he came and stood over here. And I looked at him and I said, it is your goal to get in that circle. When I count to three, you get in that circle. And as I counted one, two, three, everybody in that circle sort of latched together. They put their arms on their shoulders. They put their hips side by side. And that guy tried to get in that circle, and he couldn't do it. Then after you know, a little trying, I thought, okay, time out. All the people in the circle faced me. And they were so proud they kept him out. And I said, I just want you to note something. I didn't tell you to keep him out. I just told him to get in. And, and, and you could see kind of the thought. What do we do sometimes as Christians that somehow keeps people out of the circle? And sometimes worse, how do we even feel better that they are outside of the circle? Because it's uncomfortable when we start getting people from the community coming in. It gets a little messy, there's some discipling, there's some training, there's some adjustment. But Jesus said, you know, the circle is not just your church. The circle's not just the people here who agree with you or this congregation. Let's expand the circle out to this community. Be careful that you don't exclude anyone. But then we keep pushing the circle out. You know, a number of years ago, we had a couple that showed up in our church, and they were from Liberia, West Africa. They had just fled the civil war that was happening there, and they came to our church, and and we welcomed them, and they, after they kind of warmed up to us, they said, you know, when we first came to the United States, we went to a certain church in the Bay Area, and we were the only black family there, and After the worship, somebody came up and said, you know, we've been talking about it. You'd probably be more comfortable in a church with your own kind. Boy, this circle's pretty tight. And we ask constantly, push it out. 
Now, if you really want to get controversy, let's talk politics. If I told you how I voted this week, some of you would go, oh, I'm not going to listen to him anymore. I mean, obviously, the guy doesn't have three brain cells pointed in the right direction if he were to vote that way. And I'm finding churches beginning to argue about politics and, and all of that, and we tend to pull the circle in. And Jesus is saying the circle goes all the way out to that person who you can't stand way out there, the Samaritans in your life. The second word, first word was neighbor. The second word we want to deal with is neighbor. I'm sorry, neighbor is the first word. Love is the second. What does it mean that you and I are called to love our neighbor? I one time sat with a a group of multi-denominational pastors. They invited me to their group, and we were all doing the philosophical, we got to love people kind of thing. And, And I asked not to be the smart aleck in the group, but I asked the literal question, what does it mean to love? And over the years, I've had to come up with a definition because there's a lot of varying views about what love is, but the definition I've come down to for love is to give someone what they need. Not necessarily what they want, but what they need. Now, for the parents among you, you know there are times in your life when your child has fallen or is afraid or if something terrible has happened and the best thing you can do is you get down on your knee and the child comes and you just squeeze them and hug them because they need the assurance and they need to know that you care. And then there are other times when that kid goes running into a busy street And you don't need to love them and hug them and assure them. And you need to let them know that's not what you do. And as a parent, sometimes the loving thing that we can do is to punish our children when they misbehave. The child needs love and assurance. The child needs to be shaped and nurtured and and punished. They're They're all love. So as you and I go into this world, the question we ask is, the people whose eyes we look into, what do they need? What do they need? Maybe they need for us to be quiet, like that James passage said this morning, to listen more than we speak. Maybe they need that we're helpful in their lives. And maybe like my neighbors, They need Jesus. I live in a community where the one next door neighbor on this side, the husband is Hindu and the wife is Muslim. The guy across the street, he's Buddhist. Now, when I stand and talk to them, I somehow try to incorporate Jesus into the discussion because one of the things they need is Jesus. So the people in your life, what do they need? You'll notice in the story of the Good Samaritan, and the Samaritan had compassion on him, and then becomes a list of six things the Samaritan did. From he went to him, put oil on him, and took him in and paid the bill, six things he put into practical use. You need help, and I'm here to do it. So look at the neighbors in your life and what do they need. 
Sometimes in the church, people, that they need assurance, they need love, they need support. Sometimes they need the church to say, no, you can't do that. In one church I served, there was a man in the congregation that reconnected with his girlfriend you know, on the internet and discovered that she was unhappy in the marriage and he was unhappy and so he's going to leave his family and his kids. And I'd sit down and out of love say, no, you can't do that because that's what he needed. So Jesus takes the, the, the neighbor thing and pushes it out. Jesus takes the love thing and do it. And do you know what works against us? Many of you, if not all of you, are familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism question three says, what does the law of God require of us? And it quotes scripture. It said, to love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Question number four, can I do this perfectly? The answer, no. Because I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. That's my default position. It is so much easier for to me to hate people than it is to love. You cut me off in traffic, I don't go, man, I just love that guy. <clears throat> you know, I want to give hand signals. Um, when people in the church disagree with me, or people are a bit argumentative, suddenly it's like I want to fight back. It's my default. But by God's spirit working in our lives, he is constantly telling us, push out the natural circle. Find the needs in other people's lives and in the name of Jesus Christ, meet them. Tell them about me. And in order that you'll make a difference in this world, you're my people. Now go out and love on everyone. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, It's difficult to love sometime. It's difficult to love you with our whole heart and mind and strength. And we're sorry about that. And Lord, as we're sitting here right now, maybe we can think of somebody in this room that we're not getting along with very well. Father, we pray that we'll be a loving people. Help us to expand that circle out Help us to push out the barriers. Help us to love the people that you have put around us. And Jesus, we pray that the love you give us is not wasted, that it is shared with others. So Lord, we offer ourselves to you, and we pray that your spirit this morning will nudge us forward with greater love, greater compassion. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.